Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today is September 11th, 2014, 13 years after terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners and wreaked havoc on the United States, including the New York Trade Center and the Pentagon. So be sure to take a moment today to remember those whose lives were taken, as well as those who worked just tirelessly during the aftermath. And today I'm delighted to have Stephen Rombaum as my guest. I call him an investigator for all seasons. For over 30 years, Steve has relentlessly pursued his clients' interest across the U.S. and the international borders, you know, often at uh, considerable personal risk. Good morning, Steve. Uh, good morning, Francie. And by the way, let me just say uh, amen to your to your intro. I was in New York when that uh, attack happened, and uh, it's amazing that people are already forgetting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we need to we need to remember. We need to well, good morning. remember. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I know that uh, you are known for so many things, Steve. I've known you for it seems like a hundred years, um, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> Because we're both getting to be old people now. <laughs> what what was it? We once worked the uh, Grand Theft uh, Brontosaurus case together. Right, that's right, <laughs> right. But I, you know, I know you know you're known for so many things. I know you're uh, that you got involved in locating Nazi war criminals and collabor- collaborators, and I want to come back to that. I know that you're currently hosting Nowhere to Hide on the Identification Discovery Channel. I know you're. The technical advisor for Kinky Friedman's murder mystery series. Oh and, yeah, yep. and uh, and then you also run a business. Uh, you know, pretty much in that order lately. It seems <laughs> pretty much. The, so, the, the the TV show did take a lot out of me. Uh, fortunately, season one is over, and if there is going to be a season two, which I suspect there is, uh, I've got a a little time between now and then, so uh, I, I get to. Get back to real PI work now. Are you ready to disclose what season two is about? Oh my gosh! Um, you know, let me let me say this: this this show is really exciting for me because I've been wanting to do this sort of show for ten, fifteen years, and the big uh, impediment has always been to find a network who number one didn't want me to be, you know, a dancing monkey, a duck dynasty type of guy. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was to find a network that would give me editorial authority on investigative issues, meaning if I wanted to redact a source or a method or conceal uh, a witness or do something to protect the client's interests, which, uh, you know, you and I know not only am I ethically obligated to do, I'm legally obligated to do. Uh, You know, it it took 15 years to get a network that said yes Mm -hmm. to that requirement. And investigation discovery has been terrific. So the the first season we had... Uh, murders, official corruption, teams going overseas, uh, a, a kidnapping, family reunifications. I, I mean, we really got a chance to show what it is that PIs do. Mm-hmm. Second season, now that hopefully the viewer has has determined, had a chance to determine that, yeah, I'm a real PI, and this is these are real cases, we're going to show some of the the tougher stuff some of the more interesting fiction you know nearly fictional stuff mm-hmm. except it's true to life we're going to show a nazi war crimes case mm. uh, the julius the julius field case uh where we tracked him down got the witnesses i testified in court we put him in jail for the murders he committed during world war ii 
Um, I'm going to show a, a case involving Hamas financing, the terrorist group financing, where I personally went into Gaza and, uh, and gathered evidence against the guy who was uh, doing a variety of things to raise money for Hamas, including faking his own death. Um, we're going to have two shows that I think are going to be really, really important. Uh, one involves battered women, uh, mm. battered women that have have retained me to, uh, or their usually their families have retained me to essentially do an intervention, get the woman out of that situation, get the batterer convicted. Uh, uh, and 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 make sure he stays away from the woman. Uh, these are these are cases that PIs do more than law enforcement, I think, and they are a critical example of how how important investigators are to the to the you know to the justice community. Right. And then and then the other is something that I do day in and day out, and that's recovering missing children. We're going to show just how outrageously difficult it is to find and recover a missing child unless you can prove that child is in physical danger. If you've got a runaway 13-year-old girl, which is the case we're doing, um, who's basically, you know, she's a teenager now, she's acting out, she ran away, mm -hmm. she's hanging around with the wrong people, she's doing things that are that are pretty bad, pretty terrible. Uh, to her safety, not to the community's safety, the cops don't care mostly. They won't go after her. They'll put her in the database. Uh, if she's, you know, encountered by a law enforcement officer, she may or may not be taken into custody. Uh, but nobody's going to look for her, and nobody's going to cooperate. And that's and, because she wants to be missing, right? Well, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Unless you can show that the person is in is in the vicinity of a child molester or mm -hmm. is uh, uh, a mentally uh, deficient person or has some severe physical condition, the cops will not actively look for the person. Mm -hmm. and, and they won't, for the most part, they won't do anything uh, uh, that really helps the private investigator look for the person. Right. And, and one of the things we're going to show is how hard it is even after you find the person to recover them with the cooperation of law enforcement. This is—I mean, these two these two last shows that I mentioned, I think, are going to be uh, very, very important for the community to see. That's great, Steve. I'm really happy that you're doing that. Um, you know, as you know, I started this show because I thought private investigators were um, misrepresented. Yep, and yep. you're doing and you're doing exactly the same thing on a much broader scale, and I applaud you for that. Well, I, I, I've got to tell you, I mean, you're doing God's work with this show. The 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 uh, general perception or misconceptions about PIs are are outrageous. I mean, people to this day, <laughs> you know, uh, Raymond Chandler and Mickey Spillane were fine writers, but they <laughs> they they killed our profession. They really yeah. did. Um, I mean, people really think that investigators are big, tough guys who go into a bar and beat the truth out of somebody or burgle an office at night and yeah. pick open a, a file cabinet to get evidence. I mean, today, frankly, private investigation is a tough profession. You've got to understand the law. You've got to have forensic skills and understand things like, you know, DNA cross-border evidence. I mean, I could go on, as you know, for, for an hour mm -hmm. talking about the, the knowledge and training that PIs have to have. It's, it's a real profession. You have to understand digital evidence. You have to understand rules yeah. of evidence. It's, it's, it's not a job for a goon. And yeah, not, no, I'm, I'm not sure it ever was, but today, even less. Well, and, it, and much of the legal system depends on what we do. I mean, Oh gosh! Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. amazing. I I am constantly amazed at how much I get involved in in a case and with with a trial and all the components of that. So, um, 
It's it's true. I mean, you watch these these legal shows on TV, and all that you see is the the attorney litigating to recover money for the for the uh, you know the homeless woman, and they get a five million dollar judgment, and everyone's hugging and kissing, and the credits roll. What they don't show is what they don't show is identifying the bad guy, finding the bad guy, serving the bad guy, and those three things are done mostly by PIs. Yeah, right. Uh, gathering the witnesses, yeah, yeah. gathering the evidence, getting those witnesses and that evidence into court. Then the lawyer takes over. He gets the judgment, but it's not over. Great, you have a five million dollar judgment against the bad guy who has probably spent the past two three years that the trial's been droning on and discovery's been droning on hiding his money or giving it to his uh, his kids or his wife or setting up an offshore account in Turks and Caicos you know then you've got to go back to the PI and find this money and seize this money you 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 you're absolutely right there is no component of the criminal justice system or the civil justice system where private investigators aren't critical i mean without private investigators uh, the American justice system would really grind to a halt, mm-hmm. and That's and true. and and frankly, there would probably be twenty times as many innocent people in jail. <laughs> right. That's right too. Yep. <laughs> Even our yep. best efforts, there's still a lot of people that are in well, innocent. Well, sure, too. sure. I, I, I mean, you and I, and pretty much everyone else in our profession, has has taken cases where an innocent guy's been in jail for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years, simply because nobody ever took a look at it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So. Um, so back to you, Steve. Okay. <laughs> I want to uh, give us a little history about yourself. Where, you know, how did you get started? Where did you come from? You know, I got started completely by accident. Um, I was working overseas uh, at a job that had, uh, as we say, an investigative component, uh, finding people and finding stuff overseas. And... Um, Somebody said to me, you know, if you, <laughs> if you were back in the U.S. doing this as a PI, you'd be getting paid about five times as much, and you'd be working with a lot less knuckleheads. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, no kidding. So I took, took a break from the job. I was back in the U.S., and a guy that I knew from overseas called me up. And he says, hey, you know, I'm living down in the valley in Texas right now, and we're having a problem with theft of farm machinery. Come on down, hang out, you know, all the beer you can get. You'll basically <laughs> be doing what, what you and I did overseas. Just come on down and visit with me and help me out. This was a buddy of mine, Hispanic guy living down in Texas. And I said, you know, sounds like fun. So I <laughs> went. Farm machinery is just such your area of expertise. <laughs> well, no, I mean, they're, they're not my area of expertise uh, no, at I'm all. <laughs> it was basically guys with flatbeds driving across from Mexico. This is before 9 11 or a border fence or anything. Yeah. I mean, the entire border was open. They would drive across the border in a flatbed, grab a combine, which was worth you know, $50,000, a lot of money 30 years ago, especially in Mexico. And they'd drive it back across and the guy would wake up and he'd look in his field and his combine would be gone or his tractor would be gone. And um, we, we did what we needed to do to catch these guys and we caught them and uh, tied them up, called the, sh- called the sheriff's office. Deputy rolls up. He says, hey, how are you? And he looks at me. He says, you're not from around here. I said, no, I'm just visiting my buddy. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he takes the guy off and and locks him up and uh, charges him. So I'm still down there and uh, uh, another combine disappears or another tractor, whatever it was. So we do another, another deal, another ambush, and we catch another couple of people. And the same deputy shows up and he says, you're still here, huh? He says, uh, are you some kind of security guy or PI? I said, nope, just hanging around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, great. So the third time, and I've been down there about two weeks at that point, and the next night we catch some other people. And that time the sheriff shows up. He says, yeah, my deputy's been telling me about you. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Um, you know, I got your name off the police report. I ran your name. Uh, you're obviously a pretty busy guy here and overseas. Um, 
here's what I'm going to do because I think you're an okay guy. Uh, drop by my office. I will give you the application to open a security and investigative license in, uh, company mm -hmm. in Texas. If you don't do it, next time I'm out here, I'm going to arrest you for operating an unlicensed security and investigative business. Really? And he said, yeah. And he said, and by the way, I have to sign your application, so be at my office before four. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> because back then, the chief law enforcement officer of the county had to sign wow. the application. So I applied in Texas. I applied in Texas before New York or anywhere else. Oh, my God. And um, had, the, had the requisite three years. Um, I, I will say for the benefit of your listeners, uh, you don't just wake up one morning and decide to be a private investigator. <laughs> no. That's one of the many, many things that, that TV misrepresents. You've got to have three years of experience, three years of serious documentable experience in the investigative field. Uh, you've got to be fingerprinted and photographed. Hang on uh, to that thought, Steve. Hang on to that thought because we have to take a break. We have so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Absolutely. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator Steve Rombaum is here to talk about his many ventures and his escapades. Steve, you were just saying what it takes to be a licensed investigator. Uh, three right. years of experience. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not like you see on TV where you open an office with a pebble glass door and get a leggy secretary and, and poof, you're an investigator. Yeah. Uh, it is a lengthy, rigorous uh, uh, licensing process. You've got to prove you're, you're an experienced investigator in New York. You've got to, for example, have three years of experience above mm -hmm. the rank of patrolman. Uh, in California, I think you've got to have 6,000 hours. Correct. It's, it's, it's tough. Uh, you've got to submit to, photogra to photographs, fingerprints. Mm -hmm. uh, one set of the fingerprints go to the FBI. The others okay. are run by your local state authority. You've got to have sworn affidavits, you know, attesting to your character. Then you've got to sit down and take a test on the law. You've mm -hmm. got to have insurance. You've got to have a bond. I, it, is, it is tougher, much, much tougher to become an investigator than it is to become a, a, a police officer. 
And, and then after all of that, if you want to do security consulting, that's another license. If you want to carry a firearm, that's another difficult license. I mean, by right. the time you are the PI that they show on TV, you've probably spent about $5,000, uh, a solid year getting various licenses, uh, uh, another $5,000 for insurance and bonding and an office installation. It's, it's not something that, that you can wake up one morning and have by the next day. It's not for sissies, that's for sure. Oh, that's for damn sure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you got your license in Texas. What, then where did you go from there? Well, I mean, my expertise was working internationally and working uh, multi-jurisdictionally. Of course, the next thing that I did was I, I, I've, I'm a New Yorker, as you can probably tell from the accent. I'm certainly not a, not a Texan from this accent. Yeah. Uh, I, I went and I got my license in New York. Uh, and between New York and Texas, I've got to tell you, I was, I was lucky. Uh, because of certain areas of expertise that I have and things that I've been doing, I have never uh, not had the next job lined up. Mm -hmm. And I started doing a lot of international work. I've done, for example, about 700 fraudulent death claim investigations, the bulk of them overseas. People file uh, an insurance claim for a deceased person, and the insurance company wants you to investigate uh, if it's a legitimate claim. Uh, mm -hmm. By the time they hire an investigator, they've probably done quite a lot of investigation on their own. I would say 90% of the death claim investigations that I get, uh, the, the man or woman is in fact alive. Uh, and, it's, and it's a fraudulent claim. By the time it gets to me, the insurance company already has a good sense that it's a fraudulent claim. They're, they're really, really good at picking the, uh, the frauds out. Um, I do a lot of that. Uh, I've done uh, close to 300 uh, Nazi war criminal investigations, uh, finding them. Uh, in Canada, I did uh, a number of undercover interviews of these war criminals. We set up a, uh, a dummy university down in Belize, and mm -hmm. I went around and interviewed a, a lot of them. A lot of them were very proud to tell me about what they had done during World War II. Really? Uh, pr pretty hair-raising stuff. Um, I I'll tell you one story. Um, I had uh, been warned by some people in Israel, by some intelligence people in Israel, that some of what you see in the movies about the, the Nazis uh, was true. This is back in the early 90s, that they really did have networks and they really did talk to each other. Uh, and that people, in fact, had gotten in a lot of trouble trying to go after the war criminals. So I had a job in British Columbia. And one of the war criminals that I found, in fact, one of the worst war criminals that I found, was a guy named Antonas Kenstavicius, uh, who at that time was living in a little town in B.C. called Hope, Hope, British Columbia. And he had been the police chief of the Svensionis region in Lithuania. And he had coordinated the rounding up of all the Jews in his area and their murder. Uh, despite what you see on TV and in the movies, the vast majority of the murders of Jews were not committed by the Germans, but they were committed by Nazi collaborators, hmm. uh, Lithuanians and Ukrainians and Latvians and Belarusians, uh, local indigenous fascists who... who uh, very often the Jews were their next door neighbor mm -hmm. and they would uh, kill them in every means and method possible. They would round them up. They would put them on the trains. They would shoot them in ditches, uh, every horrible thing you can think of. Hmm. So this guy was the, was the, the head guy, the police chief and the head Nazi collaborator in the Svensionis region of Lithuania. And I went to his house and I knocked on his door. I figured if my cover is going to be blown, he, do, he is not going to have a support apparatus in British Columbia. I can be out of there long before anybody else gets there. Mm -hmm. And if I blow it, if I screw up, I mean, I was a skilled undercover guy. I had done a lot of undercover work before that, uh, including work with the Secret Service and other agencies. Um, but I'd never done an interview of a Nazi war criminal. 
And mm-hmm. I figured if I blew it, if I said something wrong, if my cover didn't hold, um, I could be out of there before anything really blew back on me. So I knocked on his door, and and to make an incredibly long story short, the guy invited me in, my cover held, and I interviewed him, and he detailed everything. He oh said, God. we rounded up the Jews, we took them to this uh, old uh, cavalry barracks, we, we held them there without food and water because we knew that they had their valuables on them and they would give up their valuables to buy food and water for their little children. Uh, at, at the point where they stopped buy, where the mothers stopped buying, you know, giving up their wedding rings and their engagement rings for water for their kids, we knew they had no more valuables. Uh, so then we took them to the ditch in groups of 10. First, we took the men, we'd shoot that we'd strip them naked, leave them one piece of clothing for their, for their eyes, for a blindfold. We'd shoot them when they fell in the ditch. The officer would come along and shoot them in the head to be sure. Uh, when we were done with the men, we would take the women and children. And then he turns to me and then he says, and then November 6th, 1941, we be finished. No more Jews. And I mean, he told me wow. everything. And his wife by the way, was his collaborator. His wife was sitting right there also. She was the one who, who came with a suitcase every day and hauled off the valuables. And, uh, and they told me everything. I mean, him and his wife told me everything. No, no embarrassment, no shame, no fear. I mean, they had nothing to be afraid of. The Canadians knew who they were. The Canadian intelligence people knew who they were and never bothered them. I got to uh, tell you, Steve, this gives me the chills. Well, I, I got to tell you, that first interview... Uh, fueled me for for a two-year undercover. And I went around and I located almost 200 of these guys in in Canada. I interviewed about 70 of them. Uh, Obviously, I was wearing a wire. Um, And and, uh, as soon as the the, uh, investigation was over, I went on Don Imus's radio show and we played some of the tapes and then I went on 60 Minutes and played the tapes and did an interview and the uproar was so enormous in, uh, mm. in uh, Canada uh, among the rank and file Jewish people that the, uh, the war crimes unit had to go after these people. Now, as soon as the uproar died down, I mean, they, they, they let this go and uh, I've got to tell you, yeah. I mean, in terms of actual justice and actual prosecution i accomplished very little but i did did expose this i did uh, mm. uh i think quite appropriately embarrass the uh, canadian uh, uh, war crimes unit and the people who should have been going after these people mm-hmm. some of these people were prosecuted a tiny number uh but uh you know i did what i was supposed to do oh wow so how is there how hmm, how do i frame this question how does tracking a Nazi war criminal differ from tracking anybody else? Is there a difference? It's easier. <laughs> it's you easier. So. You wouldn't think so, but it's really? easier. All of the, look, all of these people were known. All of these people were known. I mean, there's 50 years of records by the time I took the case. There's Yad Vashem in Israel, the big, the big organization. There were Holocaust uh, groups of Holocaust survivors. When I, the first step was to gather evidence, and I have to tell you, it took me less than less than a hundred days to gather a thousand names. We had to actually sit down and winnow through the list because we knew we weren't going to go after a thousand people. That's uh, that would have been a lifetime job. We winnowed it down to 200 people and the most, and we, we, we picked the, the, the most outrageous criminals, mm. the most horrible criminals. There was one guy that there was a single line description of this Ukrainian uh, uh, SS auxiliary. It said specialized in the murder of children. Um, you know, he, he made the list, obviously, Obviously. Uh, we picked picked 200 of these people and then we, and then we just ran them all. We ran them and it didn't take, I mean, by the end of six months, we had found a thousand people. We had selected 200 of them and we had found 172 of them. It wasn't that hard. These people knew that they were safe in Canada. They knew that nobody was after them. The vast majority were living under their own names. They bought houses. Look, you know how to find missing persons, same as I do. 
and and we didn't have to do anything on the second or third tier of finding missing persons. These people were registered voters. They had driver's licenses in their own names. They had houses under their own names. They opened businesses and took out business licenses under their own names. They had nothing to fear. And I have to tell you, I'm Jewish, and that humiliated me. I am. I I mean, I have to tell you that it was humiliating to me that these people weren't being hunted in the night by angry Jews. The fact that, I mean, forget about the Canadians. That what, what the Canadian government did stinks. I mean, they, they welcomed these people with open arms and they let them live there freely and without prosecution. But, but what, the, what, the, what the Jewish community in Canada did, in my opinion, was a, a stain on the honor of the Jewish people. It really was. You know, I'm a fine investigator, but they had 50 years to hire another investigator. I'm not the only fine investigator. In 50 years, mm-hmm. they could have done exactly what I did. Why did, why did, uh, why did Steve Rambam have to come along and, and, uh, and, and uh, drive up from, from the United right. States to do this? Yeah. I mean, it's it was it it really upset me. I mean, this was this was uh, normally I don't get personally involved in my cases. That's a that's a a, a dumb self destructive thing to do mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to internalize your clients' problems. I mean, empathy is one thing, but but taking it on as as right. if it's your problem is a bad thing. Uh, but I've got to tell you, this was a case that I took personally. I, impossible not to. Impossible not to. I, actually, Steve, even if you even if you weren't Jewish, it's impossible not to. Well, I think that's right, and I have to tell you, I've done I've done a couple of other uh, war crimes cases not involving the Jewish community, uh, where I was hired by other interested groups, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I will tell you, had the Nazi war criminals been been prosecuted. I doubt there would have been war crimes in in Argentina. I doubt there would have been war crimes in Guatemala. Uh, uh, I doubt that there would have been war crimes in Rwanda. You know, I learned mm-hmm. when I was doing this case. Somebody showed me this amazing thing when 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 the Holocaust was being planned, and uh, and uh, there was there was a meeting uh, to organize the 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 murder of the Jews in 1942 called the Wannsee Conference and uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, somebody turned to, uh, I forget whether it was Heydrich or Himmler and said, you know, the world will never forgive us for this and, 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 uh, and Himmler turns around and he says, really? Who remembers the Armenians? Who talks mm-hmm. about the Armenians today? And, and in, uh, during World War I, a million Armenians were right. murdered in the exact same way by the Turks. And it's true. The Turks yeah. got away with murdering the Armenians, and still people are, are, are reluctant to criticize the Turks. Uh, for the most part, the, the, the Nazi murderers got away with murdering the Jews. And for the most part, uh, the murderers in Argentina and, and, and in our lifetime, Argentina and Guatemala and Rwanda, for the most part, they got away with it, and I will tell you that there's nothing to dissuade the next batch of war criminals. Now, this is, of course, not the normal thing that a, a private investigator addresses or concerns himself right. with, but, but, but maybe they should. Maybe they should. Nobody else is doing it. Well, that's, I mean, that's just a phenomenal story. I, I, I personally had no idea. Um, now, what you did in Canada, that did raise the national awareness but it just just dissipated well later you know, as soon as as soon as uh, i went back to america and people stopped raising hell i mean the government really didn't care they welcomed these people with open arms and 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 the government you know i'll tell you an interesting story uh the, the one of the cases in season two of of nowhere to hide uh the the show that i'm doing on on investigation discovery mm-hmm. um and, and by the way, let me put in a little semi-plug, but it's of interest to your listeners. All of these shows that, that I did, all of the episodes, uh, if anybody who missed them, they're up on, and I don't get any money off of this, so I'm just, this is genuinely yeah. a public interest 
Christmas notification. Um, they're up on Apple, on Amazon, on uh, on YouTube, on uh, Google Play. You can oh, watch sure. all six all six episodes uh, at your at your leisure. And I promise you, they're they're pretty darn good. Uh, Investigation Discovery. And uh, the production company did a hell of a job on these. Oh, terrific. Um, That's good. I'm glad you brought that so, up. So let, let, let me just tell you, one, one as an investigator, uh, this will be of interest to you. Um, the problem with prosecuting the Nazi war criminals was that the Canadians said, we don't have evidence. But, but what they were doing was they were looking at these cases as political issues, not as criminals, not as criminal cases. Um, and if they had prosecuted each of these murder cases as murder cases, instead of looking on them as political issues, they could have nailed every single Nazi war criminal. In Canada, and by the way, the U.S. is guilty of the same thing. We have a yeah. war crimes unit in the U.S. called the OSI, the Office of Special Investigations. And while they've done better than every other country, they've only prosecuted or deported about a hundred war criminals. Their their track record sucks. Also, sucks mm. beyond belief because this is America, and we should do better. But right. but here's here's what I I, I gave a speech. In, in Canada, and I said, look, we have to prosecute these cases as, as crimes. Uh, the first thing that you learn as a criminal investigator is, if you've got a criminal conspiracy, if you've got five guys that went out and did a robbery or a murder, and you know who they are, you swoop them up, you throw each one in a separate little room with a separate team of investigators, and you say, okay, we know you five guys did this murder. We've got you and your other four buddies in the other rooms. One of you is going to get a walk. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a walk. We'll let right. you go home. Yep. You've literally gotten away with murder. That's the way it works. The other four guys don't get the deal. Are you yep. going to be the smart guy? And typically all five guys you know, go, go for the deal and they all go to jail. Yeah. Uh, Nazi war criminals committed these murders in organized groups. The Aris Commando from Lithuania, uh, I'm sorry, from, from, from Latvia, the uh, auxiliary SS units in, in the Ukraine, the Lithuanian units, the Croatian units. Most of these people were organized fascists who were recruited by the Nazis, by the Germans, to do their dirty work. And then after the war, they emigrated en masse to, right. to Canada. There were two ships called the Sarnia and the Patria that went back and forth hmm. from, from Europe to Canada, Europe to Canada, and would bring 50 RIS commando members and their families, or would bring the Lithuanians and their families. And then they would settle together in Canada within blocks of each other. They would have community organizations that kept up the old fascist stuff. They had summer camps for their kids where they mm. would sing the old Nazi songs. I mean, these were organized criminal groups just like the mafia. Wow. And what I said was, investigate these and prosecute these like criminal cases, like murder cases. Mm -hmm. You're right. And the Canadians, right. well, the Canadian War Crimes Unit, the RCMP War Crimes Unit, wouldn't do it. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do a proof of concept investigation. And I held a press conference and I said, we are setting up a 1-800 number. If you have information on Nazi war criminals, or if you are a Nazi war criminal and you want to get ahead of the curve, you call this number and you give us information. I, I, as a joke, I called it 1-800-RAT-ON-A-NAZI. <laughs> and, and, and we got dozens and dozens of calls. And one of the calls that we got was from a Concordia University professor, a famous one a well-respected one whose name was Adelbert Lallier. And he revealed to us that he had been a Nazi SS lieutenant. And he had viewed his commanding officer one day, breakfast time, for no reason, walked over to where their rifles were stacked, pick up a rifle, walked over to a ditch where Jews were digging an anti-tank ditch and shot seven of them dead, restacked the rifle, went back to eating breakfast. And that Nazi's name, that murderer's name was Julius Veal, V-I-E-L. 
And okay. uh, you can Google this case and pull up all the articles about it. Um, with Lallier as a witness and other witnesses we developed and evidence that we gathered in Czechoslovakia and assistance from people in Germany and the War Crimes Unit and my testimony, we put this guy on trial in Germany. The Germans prosecuted him, convicted him, put him in prison. This is one of the only war crimes, uh, war criminals that was convicted by a private, uh, uh, the result of a private investigation. But on top of that, he is one of the only war criminals that we were able to identify and name the specific victims by name. You know, usually these people killed so many people, it was just anonymous right. masses of victims. But we were able to identify six of those seven people in the ditch. And, and he was prosecuted by name for killing them. We got justice for these six uh, murder victims. And, and the, the Canadian War Crimes Unit was humiliated, and there was a, a, a uh, hearing in the Parliament, and I was invited to sit in the Parliament Gallery in, in Ottawa, and I was mentioned by name on the floor of the Canadian Parliament. And, of course, nothing happened. They Amazing. didn't do one single case like that. So, so that, by the way, that's going to be one of the cases that we cover in the next, uh, in the next uh, season. That's great, Steve, because uh, you and I both know that there are people in this world that think that the Holocaust never happened. <laughs> it's just a, well, a, a crazy deeply, theory. Deeply, deeply disturbed people actually believe that. I think most of the people who say that the Holocaust didn't happen are people like uh, Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority. You know, yeah. he, he actually wrote his master's thesis that the, I'm sorry, his PhD thesis that the that the Holocaust never took place. For him, it's just politically better if there's no political reason for the state of Israel to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, good work. Good work. Thank I mean, you. I've got to I've got to applaud you for what you've done, and I know that that you did it all pro bono. And that had to. Well, I got my I got my expenses back. I got my. Got expenses back. <laughs> well, there there you go. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, two years of billable time. Uh, yes, that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> two years. Two years and that, and countless thousands of hours. I know went into that because I know well, how hard it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did myself, myself, and 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 three other guys who helped me. Um, we probably combined donated about 3,000 hours in, in billable time. And I got to tell you, um, that's, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, the Pinkerton agency. I don't have billions of dollars in billables. So mm-hmm. that, uh, that did uh, tough. slow yeah. my business down a bit for, for a few years. Absolutely. Now, I know that you were telling me that you're doing a couple of other little projects involving publishing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I found that fascinating. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, um, we have expanded my company, Polarium. Has, has expanded our educational activities. Uh, I am the vice president now of a new group called Fraternal Order of Investigators. Uh, if any private investigators are listening, I urge them to contact me about this association. It's a not-for-profit, non-competitive fraternal organization. We're not trying to supplant anybody. We're not trying to replace Aldenese or Cali or any group like that. This is strictly for education and networking. Uh, we're running seminars. Uh, we are working with a publishing house called Pro Bono Press, to put out the Investigation and Intelligence Library. We've got 14 books that are going to be coming out in the next, uh, the next 12 months. Uh, there's going to be uh, quite a lot of articles being written by myself and some other people. This is, this is something that I think uh, is, is, uh, is a big hole in the investigative community that needs to be filled. You know, education by investigators for investigators. Mm-hmm. Not, the, not the usual... Not the usual 10 or 20 uh, speakers that keep going around and talking and talking about the same old stuff. Uh, We need to talk about TSCM for investigators and DNA for investigators. Wait a minute, let's back up. Let's talk about what TSCM is. (laughs) Uh, 
debugging technical surveillance countermeasures. Sorry, That's sorry, okay. I was I was geeking out there for a second. Yes, technical debugging for private investigators and DNA for private investigators. I have a colleague of mine who solved a rape case, got a bad guy in jail and got an innocent guy out of jail because he knew enough about DNA to get the victim's brassiere tested. Wow. Uh, the guy grabbed her and got saliva on her breast, which got on the, on the bra, and when it was tested, it proved that the guy in jail was not the, 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 the bad guy. And the bad guy's uh, uh, saliva was surprisingly in CODIS, in the DNA database. I mean, most PIs don't even know what CODIS is, unfortunately. Right. So what, why, don't you um, tell, why don't you say what CODIS is? CODIS is a DNA. It's a national DNA database where, where suspects and, and bad guys' DNA are put, in, are put in CODIS. And if you get a DNA hit on a crime scene, you can compare it in the database the same way you would run somebody's fingerprints. Uh, very, very important investigative tool and, and, and judicial tool. Um, we're going to have crime scene photography for investigators, field expedient photography. Most often, the only camera that a, that a PI has available when they need a camera available is their iPhone. <laughs> That's you know, right. How to get that iPhone to work. Uh, things like, like post-photo post uh, uh, manipulation of photos where you can enhance a photo. It's possible today to refocus a photo. After it's been taken, if you if you take your photos properly, I mean, amazing stuff. Uh, um, things like you know, once a week I see private investigators post, "How do I get that damn time and date stamp when I uh, on, exactly. on the on the DVD when I export it?" Um, you know, things like international investigations. You can't be a local. PI anymore. You just can't. Yeah. Uh, you're going to find a witness has gone to Guatemala mm-hmm. or a piece of evidence is in Russia. Uh, uh, you can't just be, you know, countywide investigations anymore. If you are, you're not going to be able to do the right thing for your, for your clients. So international investigations, uh, legal things involved with undercover investigations, what you can and can't do. There, there are going to be about 25 courses like this, and we are going to have a credential at the end of this called the Board Certified Investigative Professional. We've applied for an educational school license in New York. Uh, we are going to have a DPS school license in Texas. Uh, we are getting all the various CE and CLE uh, granting uh, uh, authority certifications. This is going to be basically a college for investigators. That's great. Great idea. Great idea. Well, sign me up. How do I sign how do I sign uh, up for that? Go go to go well, send me an email. Go to we have a, a temporary website set up, fraternalinvestigators.org. Uh, watch that site. Uh, anybody who wants to can go to my website for now, Polorium. That's P as in Peter, A double L orium.com there's a an email link on literally every page of the website click it tell us you're interested in the courses uh, please do tell us you're a private investigator or a law enforcement officer or whatever it is that you do uh, if you have a skill uh, a unique skill that you would like to be one of the speakers mm-hmm. you think you have a good course that pi should take tell us about that Tell us about that. We, we're, you know, this is a non-competitive, uh, uh, absolutely pro bono setup. We're not looking to make money. We are perfectly happy to bring you in and have you stretch your stuff. Uh, you know, go ahead and send us a note and we will, we will put you on the list. That's great. That's fabulous. I'm sure people will be interested in that. Um, and, and Steve, you are... Um you're an editor for a couple of books that are coming out. Uh, of this investigations and intelligence library, I am the editor for ten of them. For ten uh, of them. I, yeah, for okay. ten of them, which okay. I have to tell you is, boy, it's a lot harder than it sounds. And I will tell you, 
<laughs> and you when, do this in your spare time. <laughs> well, I'm on planes a lot. I'm on planes a lot. I, I'm going overseas. I'm going overseas tomorrow night, for example, and I'm going to be on a 14-hour flight, and I will have my laptop and a lot of my research material for one of these books, and I will be going through the research material and taking notes and working on the intro. Um, the, the problem is these are such fascinating subjects, you get, you get sucked into it. For example, one of the books that's coming out is called The Spies That Saved America. It's about 25 spies that were, that were George Washington's network and literally, literally are responsible for America existing. And when, when I went down to the Library of Congress and to the National Archives to, to look at source material, because I'm not going to just, you know, there's, there's a, a, a habit among history writers. It's called read 10 books, write an 11th. And, and, and shame on these guys. Because a lot of what they write is garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. A lot of what they write is wrong. And so I, I, I decided I wasn't going to do that. I was going to look at primary source documents, and I was going to get original documents and put them in my intro. And so I, for this book, I went down to the Library of Congress in NARA. And I have to tell you, I got sucked into this. I spent a whole week there. It was, it was I couldn't tear myself away any quicker. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing, just as one American to another, one of the most I mean, the hair on the back of my neck stood up when I saw this, was one of the original drafts of the Declaration of Independence. New technology had been used, spectrographic analysis, where they were able to use different light wavelengths and bring out the erasures and the corrections Uh on this original draft. And and where, where the original drafts talked about citizens talk today about citizens you see that originally they used the word subjects and the people understood that a free citizenry are not subjects exactly so they crossed it out and they wrote citizens and i saw this with my own eyes and i gotta tell you i mean not that i wasn't a patriotic guy before but when you really when i really had a chance to look at these original documents and read george washington's letters and see documents like this and you understand what an extraordinary country this is and how absolutely unique we are. I mean, I know that there are people in this current administration who say, you know, this is not an exceptional country. I got to tell you, they're dead wrong. They're really, really wrong. Well, really this, wrong. And, not- and, and this is, just, is perfect, uh, Steve, on this particular day of 9-11. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that yeah. out. Yeah. You know, Steve, we're at the end of our show. As I mentioned when we talked earlier, we always run out of time. Thank you so much for joining the show. It was fabulous. Thank you for being a great interviewer. I mean, I I really didn't know how we were going to fill it out. You kept me talking. Well, it was was easy. Uh, You have a lot to say. Uh, Also, thanks to our loyal sponsor, PI Magazine. I have to always mention PI Magazine, who's been with us for four and a half years now. Listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Stephen Rombaum. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.